This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am Sadia Khan. I hope you're all well. Thank you for joining me in this space to partake in another important, fun, messy, beautiful conversation. In a world that feels chaotic, and believe you me, the world is a mess right now, finding moments of joy can be challenging. But here in this space, we are all about embracing the little things finding solace in each other's stories and celebrating the beauty of human connection. Now, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, Immigrantly is about human stories. It is human-centered. Imagine immigrant identity as this big umbrella and we have different subsections of lived experiences from food and faith to love and relationships, all in one place. And Immigrantly celebrates all those different emotions and dimensions of human existence. Today, I am so excited to talk to Nagin Farsad. She's a writer and comedian. You might know her from her podcast, Fake the Nation, which focuses on culture, politics and conversations between Nagin and the many guests on her show. And you know who's here to talk about all of this with me. I am so excited by this panel. Um, I had the distinct pleasure of working with this guy very recently. He's a comedian. He's a writer. He's got a new special out. And I he's so funny. And I cannot wait for you guys to see the special. It is called Wallpaper. And it's free on YouTube. The man's name is Adam Caton Holland. These guests include talk show host Samantha B, comedian Margaret Cho, and so many more. Her conversations delve into the multiple tangents surrounding a topic, whether that's pop culture moments like the Grammys or political commentaries on recent legislation. I'm really thrilled to speak with her today about why she does what she does and her favorite moments from her show. So let's get started.
Welcome to Immigrantly. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited and I can see your back wall. I love the colors. <laughs> Thank you. Is this your house? Yeah, this is this is where I live. Oh my gosh, I love it. I love the colors. Nikin, you're based in New York, right? That's right. East Village. We could have done this in person. Oh, man. I know. I know. I was looking through your Twitter because why not, right? Sure. It's I, I'm scared because, A, I don't know what I've eat, like I've tweeted so inconsistently in the last few months because of obviously Elon Musk. But and also I'm just saying I, I am afeared for what you have seen. OK, <laughs> <laughs> no, I saw something that I think you tweeted recently. This was from December 2023. And I quote, I grew up in Palm Springs, California, where the main populations were old retirees, gay people and Mexican families. And from them, I learned a lot, unquote. What did you learn from each group? That's funny. I, first of all, don't even remember tweeting that. But I have talked about the main population groups um, in Palm Springs a lot in my stand-up. And I think it's it's interesting. Like I said, I grew up in this retirement community. Palm Springs has like a lot of retirees, a lot of snowbird people that just come for the winter. And we live there year round, you know, and in the summer, Palm Springs is like really, 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 really hot. And people who have the means usually flee. But if you're actually living there as a kid, like you just experience that hot, hot summer. And, uh, you know, and I have w wonderful fond memories of it, actually. You know, I would play on the streets where there would be no other children. <laughs> it would just be like me alone on the street, you know, and then there would be some sort of senior citizen that would drive down the street at minimum speeds. And I was like, oh, okay, I have like at least 20 minutes before I have to get back on the sidewalk. That's how slowly they were driving. And I don't know, I, I think I just learned to live in this sort of multi-generational life, you know, from them, that I had a lot of neighborly relations with just people that were much older than me. They sort of became my friends and in the absence of children in the neighborhood, you know what I mean? It was literally like, me and retirement age people who also bought all of my Girl Scout cookies, you know? And so I, I think even now at this age, I find myself gravitating towards older people. Like I love hearing their wisdom. I love hearing stories. I love, you know, I love sort of like unpacking older people. At, we, we sort of like don't necessarily do this in American culture. You know what I mean? We don't, not at all. We don't have the respect your elder thing. Iranians, and I'm Iranian, have a really, really strong respect thy elders culture. And we don't really have that in the United States. I mean, of course, you're like nice to your grandparents or whatever, but like, do you admire it and respect them at the same levels as you would in Iran? Absolutely not. It's just not the same. Absolutely. Even in Pakistan, when I was growing up, there are multi-generational households and families and then you come to the U.S. U.S. is pretty ageist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people I don't agree. realize it, right? There is so much emphasis on youth, and that probably ties into work efficiency and how productive you are. Yep. And there is very little value given to wisdom or experience. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That does happen. But what about other two groups, gay people and Mexican families? Well, I think the thing that I sort of learned from gay people was the 
sort of the absence of learning, which is that like I felt I remember in high school I had, you know, everyone was like, that's so gay. And and everyone was sort of like default homophobic, even the kids who were actually gay. (laughs) (laughs) We would still say stuff like that's so gay or whatever. And but I was so just actually very used to being around gay people like that. It didn't register to me as anything particularly noteworthy. You know what I mean? Mm. So I think that's like one of the the things that we get out from exposure, which is you are exposed to something, it normalizes it, and it's just not a big deal. And then, you know, of course, when I went to college, like one of my first best friends was gay, you know, and and I had a lot of gay friends in college and it was a get it wasn't like so weird. It was just like, you know, I remember growing up, our neighbors that were just immediately next to us they were really a great loving couple, also like mixed race gay couple. And um, my parents loved them. I loved them. And whenever my parents would go away, because my parents would leave me like for a night or whatever, like go on, you know, on a trip or something, they would tell Hal and Bob, like, take care of our daughter, like checking on our daughter. And it's funny to me that this, these immigrant parents who because of social pressures, had to, like, pretend to be homophobic. (laughs) (laughs) Like, actually would entrust the life of their daughter to a gay couple. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Because it's like, how how many years did we live next to Hal and Bob? Like, a million years. So, like, obviously my parents loved Hal and Bob, trusted Hal and Bob. And so... So them being gay sort of didn't factor into our daily life at all. But then, of course, if you put my parents in a party with other, you know, Iranian immigrants or something, they're going to be like, oh, yes, gay, gay people, bad, 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 bad. But like, you know, like they didn't actually feel that way. So it's this funny thing that we've, you know, that I think generationally we've had to do is put on these airs of a, about like, yes, no, I'm definitely homophobic, you know, but like not without actually being homophobic. It's it's really ridiculous. You're right. And I really want to go back to your point about there were gay people and they were also hating on gay people, which is so interesting and fascinating to me because I was listening to this podcast, Family Secrets. It's a great podcast if you haven't listened to it. And the guest talks about how America can make you hate yourself. There is a lot of internalized hatred, resentment, self-loathing that comes with being any minority in America. And I can speak to it. I grew up in Pakistan, came to the U.S. as an immigrant. I'm a Muslim woman. So a lot of other dimensions. Have you ever felt that as a minority, as a kid of immigrants, self or internalized resentment at any point during your life? I think there are times where I probably explicitly felt those things. But then I think what's more interesting is that you feel those things without being able to understand them. They just sort of operate in an, as an undercurrent in your everyday life. One of my earliest memories of preschool is being the only girl in there that just wasn't obviously American. You know what I mean? And just being like so annoyed. And it was because we were in we were in Virginia at this time. I grew up mostly in Palm Springs, but when I was very little, we were in Virginia. And it was like really a bunch of like little beautiful blue eye, blonde hair, like the doll experiment girls, you know? So I I remember feeling distinctly like, why don't I look like them, you know, or whatever. And I don't even know if I said to myself, why don't I look like them? But I felt a weird thing. You know what I mean? That as a child, I couldn't understand. I think later on, it's it, I moved to, to Palm Springs. There's so many Mexicans in Palm Springs 
And then interestingly, I do, you know, I, I, I talk about this in standup, like I longed to be Mexican just because they were a larger, more distinct minority group that had a really distinct place in American culture that everybody understood, especially in Southern California. And so again, it's like, could I name the thing that I was doing to myself at those tender ages? I couldn't, but I definitely feel like it was working underneath the surface. No, you're right. It happens in ways where you're not able to identify it as explicitly, but it becomes part of who you are. I remember when I came, this was post 9-11 era, and I was almost scared to say that I'm a practicing Muslim because America, in terms of Muslim women especially, either likes oppressed Muslim women or Muslim women who don't identify as Muslim. Yeah, 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 totally. Even to this day, I do feel that people are confused as to what box should they put me in. Nikina, I want to talk about Palm Springs again. So you moved to Palm Springs when you were seven and then you went off to do your master's master's in African-American studies and then you decided to become a full-time comedian. I know there's a story. I watched your talk at Harvard Bookstore. Oh, my gosh. But I do want you to talk about it a little. So like after college, I moved to New York City and I was doing comedy. In college, I was a a government and theater double major. And so, you know, I always loved theater. I always loved comedy. And so I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff, just small scale stuff in New York City. I applied for, for graduate programs. And it's funny because I really boxed myself in like thinking, acting like it was, it had nothing to do with the comedy. Like, but I was really like, oh, I'm just going to apply to a couple of schools only in New York City. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and luckily, like I got, you know, I, I was able to go to, to Columbia and get a dual master's in, pu- in African-American studies, but also public policy in two different schools. So I was getting two, it, it was, it, you know, super ridiculous considering that I was going to end up being a comedian where you need zero degrees, but also feeling really strongly like, no, no, no I'm going to go into public service. And so I did actually work for the city for a, quite a while as a policy analyst and really believed in the work. You know what I mean? I And I, and I loved working for the city and I really, and I loved meeting all of the other public servants that worked for the city, like I I believed in the cause, but I was always doing comedy at night. (laughs) And, and I sort of always had one foot out the door until, you know, friends of mine staged an intervention basically. And they were just like, you know, you want to be a comedian, snap out of it. And I'm like, why? No, it's the most narcissistic profession. But I did, I really wanted to be a comedian. And that was the case, you know, that was true. And so I just went for it full time. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that's like, um, you know, it's a big risk, obviously. It's still, it's always a risk. Like no, you know, and my parents weren't particularly pleased, but also no parent should be particularly pleased, immigrant <laughs> or not. Like, I don't want my child to develop a, you know, a proclivity for stand-up. Like, I want that gene to end here. You know what I mean? Why? Oh, it's just, it's it's just incredibly unstable. It's really brutal. You have to have, like, the thickest skin. And hopefully by the time she's of age, we will have figured out all of our gender issues in comedy. But it's still incredibly male-dominated. It's gotten better and better and better, but it's still incredibly male dominated. And the interesting thing about it now is like it's incredibly we were talking about living in an age of society. Comedy is not at all a lifestyle 
that's suitable for parents, you know? So I feel like I go into, um, to do shows and I'll be at a green room and it'll, I feel like I tend to be the only parent or like there might be a couple of other parents. The other parent might be a guy. It's very difficult. I can see why people would leave this job after having a child. Professions are so sexist, right? It's like there are professions that guys can still pursue, even if they are parents. And women are still struggling to balance that, right? Oh, yeah. Maybe another 20, 30 years, it will change. Hopefully it will change. You do social justice comedy, though, right? How do you define social justice? I mean, it's just something that I sort of said in the early days. It's funny because it's like, I don't even know if it's like encompasses enough of what I do because I also do just comedy about like, you know, yeah, TV shows that I'm watching and junk food that I eat and, you know what I mean, dating and sex and all of that stuff. Like I talk about everything. But I think in the early days, people would always say that I was a political comic. And I thought that was interesting because I was never doing material about like Mitch McConnell or something. You know what I mean? Like I don't do stuff like that. But I was and I probably still am ver- labeled a political comic. A, I mean, I get it. My background, I was in politics. I really love politics. I love talking about it. But I think every time I would say anything about like my family or Comedy is an incredibly personal thing. So you just end up saying that you're Iranian. You end up talking about your Iranian parents. It's not like I'm trying to be political, but any mention of that sounded political. The term always rubbed me the wrong way because I was like, I don't know if I'm being like particularly partisan or whatever in my material, but I do think I'm always trying to be on the side of social justice in my material. I don't think it was that you were being political. Your identity is politicized in America. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, what do you do if your Iranian Muslim identity is politicized? It's not your fault. Nagin, did you have any guardrails when you started comedy? And how has comedy evolved for you? Are you more comfortable talking about uncomfortable things or have you ever had a certain cadence when it comes to what you will or won't discuss? I mean, I don't feel like anything is particularly off the table. And I felt that way from the very beginning. And I think part of it is because of a little ignorance on my part about being an Iranian American comedian. I feel like in the early days, I noticed that people had If there was like a Pakistani American comedian or, you know, a Chinese American comedian, oftentimes they would have audiences that were full of those people, right? You see a Pakistani American comedian, you get excited, you become a fan, right? And that made sense. So I sort of assumed that Iranians too, or just Muslims, Middle Easterners in general, would jump on board the Nagin Farsad bus, you know what I mean? (laughs) I think if I had grown up in Los Angeles or like a a place where there was a heavy, you know, enclave of um, Muslims, of Iranian Americans, I would probably have a different view of what I can say publicly. I did not grow up that way. So I was never really forced to like censor myself or, you know, we just, I don't know, my parents 
somehow didn't tell me. I don't know. It's 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 weird. So when I started out comedy, I started out doing like really like blue material. I was like heavily dating. Dating was all over it. Sex was all over it. Let's talk about me um, in my areas. I recently um, I recently had to get an STD test uh, because I was a raging slut for a period of my life. Uh, that ended last week and the, the good news is that um my vagina is closed and disease free and you know until until uh, marriage or until uh, someone takes me out to dinner um, at a restaurant with zagat rating at least eight out of 30 i'm easy okay. i mean that's everywhere in comedy right it's like not weird you know i would be in in the clubs and rooms in new york city performing comedy, doing material about sex, and white audiences started to love it, right? Like I was getting better and better and, and developing more stuff around that. And I remember doing my first gig in Chicago at the University of Chicago. I think it was the University of Chicago or it was Northwestern. Apologies. I'm sure it's annoying when people get those two places confused. <laughs> but anyways, I was at one of those two schools and they had, they told me in advance, oh, we're opening up this show to like people from the community instead of just students. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. Like not thinking anything of it. That sounds great. So then what happens? A lot of Iranians come to the show. Okay. So I'm doing stuff about dating, whatever, thinking like it's completely fine. And it's silence. Like these adults, it's like half adults, half like college age students. And the college age students are like covering their mouths laughing because they feel weird laughing in front of their parents. <laughs> older people who are Iranian. So nobody's laughing. The like parent age people were like scowling at me. And then at the end, I hear, you know, there's like a, 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 a just a, a this much clapping. <laughs> and then and then I walk off stage and then I hear this woman say within earshot, like so I could clearly hear her. What a prostitute. Right. Oh, <laughs> just wow. like an insult in Farsi. And I was like, oh, geez. And then these kids kept came up to me like, oh, you're so brave for saying all of those things. I'm like, what do you mean I'm so brave? Like, I've been saying this stuff in New York every night. Like, there's no bravery. Involved. And I realized like, oh, their groups, they're just far more conservative than me. Like, especially like a like a, an immigrant, who, a recent immigrant, like my parent age immigrant or whatever. They're just more conservative than me. So that was it was a it was a rude awakening. It was really tough. A lot of my early hate mail came not just from like white people who hated Muslims or whatever, right? This is in the years after 9-11. It also came from just straight up Middle Eastern people who thought I was shameful. So that was a really big lesson in those early days. And it's something that has changed over time. I think as I've refused to sort of quit the job and as I've become more and more just I get more mainstream jobs and recognition. And I think you know, it's meant that Iranians are like, oh, I guess she's not going anywhere. And oh, we see what she's doing. She's actually, this isn't necessarily for us, but that's okay. And so um, it's, that's been really interesting for me. Has it in any way influenced how your comedy has evolved over the years? That one incident? No, I honestly, I it made me double down. I because I just was like, that's an influence. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There it is. It, yeah, there it is. Because I, I just realized I can't depend. First of all, I'm not. I am not as Iranian as someone who grew up in Iran. I didn't grow up in Iran, and I'm not as 
pie-eating American or whatever as someone who has generationally been here for many generations. I haven't been here. My family hasn't been here for many generations. So I'm this in-between person, I think, and this was my feeling, was that I'm the perfect bridge. And I can do a bunch of translating and I can do, you know, and I can be this bridge character that understands both worlds and like, I want to be able to take advantage of that. But that's a lot of burden on you then, right? Because you cannot always be a bridge for either communities. Sure. Sometimes jokes that you make may be very uncomfortable for your white audience as well. I mean, even when it comes to politics, I've noticed that my politics, especially recently, can make people extremely uncomfortable in terms of what I believe in, how I approach social justice, how I view equality through that lens. Because I'm sure there are instances where you made white people uncomfortable, right? Sure. How do you navigate those spaces then? It's interesting because I think one of the things about being a comedian is that our pain threshold is extremely high. So if I'm making like white audiences uncomfortable or if I'm making making brown audiences uncomfortable and it results in like silence, that's like part of the job, like figuring it out as part of the job and trying to figure out how to make people like just uncomfortable enough that they still laugh Hmm. is a part of the job, you know? And so I think that's been my goal, right? Is like, you know, I was doing this jihad joke like recently. I share it with, with good intention. So I hope anyone who's listening understands that com- comedy goes through waves and we're just all trying to figure it out. But in the aftermath of October 7th, which was an incredibly, incredibly tragic event, there was, you know, it, I would say a month later or something like that, there was this day that all the parents were talking about not sending their kid to school because it was going to be a deep jihad day. I don't know if you remember this. I only really noticed it because there were so many WhatsApp messages between parents we got messages from the principal, the school school system was sending out messages like, oh, like there's a day of jihad or whatever. <laughs> what and what the I, fuck is that though? Exactly. What the fuck is that? And I was like, so I was making this joke that was just like, there's this day of jihad. And as a Muslim, I was like, how was I not even invited to this day of jihad. (laughs) I'm not saying I want to be invited to the jihad party, but I don't want to not be invited to the jihad party. Like how uncool of a Muslim am I that I can't even get that invite? (laughs) I'm checking my spam folder. Is it in there? Nope, it's not in there. Nothing. Google invite, nothing. And the the point is that there was not a day of jihad. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's funny because when I started to bring that up and I could tell that the audience was like, oh no. This Muslim bitch is going to make a joke and it is dangerous. You know what I mean? They they could I could feel that they felt the danger. And then I made the punchline of like, I, you know, I wasn't invited to the jihad party and I got a huge laugh because it it's like, oh, all right, she's it's all right. Like she's just making a joke about that. And it's self-deprecating, too, because it's like ultimately I'm like so unpopular, you know, um, there's a, that's a, a thread in the joke. And that was the thing is like, how can you, again, God bless the live audiences that have laughed at that. And they, so far, they've all laughed at that. But that's the the thing, right? Everything feels so pressure filled right now. And it, we all feel so kind of like 
scared of saying something because what if we say the wrong thing and oh my God, and then what if we get canceled? And I feel like regular people feel that never mind comedians and media personalities who have to speak more publicly. Everyone feels worried and nervous about talking. And that has something that I feel like has definitely influenced comedians and it influences me. And I'm trying to work my way through it because I don't want things to stop me from talking. Like talking is my whole job. I want to pivot to your podcast. So I've been listening to your podcast episodes and they are a lot of fun. And you basically ease your audience or listeners into conversations, right? So you'll start with something that's happening in pop culture and then you'll move to politics. But that politics is very easy to consume. It's palatable. It's not uncomfortable politics. I am like, I feel like a a patriot, like a dorky level. I have an American flag at home that I got that flew over Congress. I keep it in a safe space place. It's like a treasured item. I have the little flag that my parents waved at their like citizens. And I wonder, are there moments of discussion that you use as a cathartic relief for yourself? Or are they an exploration of ideas that you want your audience to enjoy? Is there a preference when you are approaching these different topics? It's interesting because I feel like almost it's like I'm always trying to go back to like 2014 or something, you know what I mean? Where we had shows like The Daily Show that we would all tune in. We have like a nice laugh about politics. And then even, uh, you know, I, I wasn't like very active during the Bush administration or whatever. I was like younger. But even then, I think even though we've had 9-11, even though we went into these wars, we were somehow better able to like have these political conversations Do you think that? I don't know if it was we were able to culturally come on the same page more quickly and more frequently. I just feel like people of color at the time were not having those uncomfortable conversations as much. It's like, you know, now when I see younger folks and almost everyone around us, People have just woken up to this idea of we are going to reclaim our identity and we are going to be unapologetic about who we are. And we'll talk about those uncomfortable things that have bothered us, impacted us. And I think that's what's making everybody else around us extremely uncomfortable. Honestly, I think it just wasn't as popular. Hmm. It just wasn't as popular. Right now, there's so many more like ethnic comedians. There's so there's so much more discussion. Um, there's so much more acceptance. There's so much more institutional support. You're gonna, you're more likely to see these people on television. Yeah, and there's social media, right? In their social media. I mean, like literally when I started doing, I mean, I started stand up around 2007, 2008. I was trying to be cast as an actor. I mean, I couldn't get a single job. It was not popular to book a person who looked ethnic. It was not now things have changed and it might be easy, you know, it might be easier. And I don't want to say it's like so easy. It's still not so easy, right? It's still extremely difficult, but like it's maybe just, it is a touch easier. It's just more socially accepted. Why do you think that's happening now? I have to be honest. I mean, part of it, I think is economics. I mean, there's people like Shonda Rhimes who made Grey's Anatomy. I don't remember when that show came out, but it was early 2000s. And I remember watching that show and being like, 
wow, there's like a bunch of women and ethnic people and black people in this cast. I just remember feeling like so floored. And that became the biggest show on TV because you can make money making a show that reflects America. You know what I mean? And that felt pretty revolutionary. And it also felt, and it I think it was vindication for someone like Shonda Rhimes. Like, oh, hey, if you make material that is a reflection of America the way someone like Shonda Rhimes sees it, it can still make a lot of money. So I think money is a, has something to do with it. I also just think like all of our social movements have something to do with it. You know, the backlash against Islamophobia. Like I, I made a movie called The Muslims Are Coming. It came out in 2014. Um, and then also interestingly, we're working on a sequel to that movie so that we can go back to the on the road and see where everyone is at. And the, things like that, where it's like that Islamophobia was dumb. Um, it is dumb. <laughs> it is bad, <laughs> and it is horrible. You know, um, and and I think and the, and so I think there's like a, a humanitarian backlash to those things, which is like, no, like we're not gonna be violent towards Muslims. Instead, why don't we embrace them and put them on television? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and again, these are positive developments. And we oftentimes like, you know, we, we talk about our current climate, like everything's terrible, everything's terrible, everything's terrible. And we really neglect to even celebrate these positive changes. But you're more likely to see brown people on TV. And that's a good thing. We do see that change, as you said, not just on TV, but then podcasting. Barriers to entry in podcasting are very low. We see a lot more people on social media. TikTok is another space where you see a lot of ethnic minorities thriving. So you're right. Have you ever had a conversation that really changed or evolved your perspective on things? Because you do banter. You banter with your guests. Honestly, like just yesterday, we taped an episode because the the Jennifer Crumley case, Jennifer Crumley is the mother of a shooter in Michigan, her teenage son conducted a mass shooting um, and he ended up killing four people and he um, has been sentenced to life in prison and without parole. Uh, he was charged as an, adult, as an adult and she went on trial last week because she was charged for um, involuntary manslaughter for her role as a parent in that shooting, which is to say they found her to have ne you know negligent parenting and that she also didn't properly, her and her husband, who's being tried separately, did not properly handle the weapon that was gifted to him. It wasn't locked up. It wasn't, it was just not properly managed. And so that was one of those things where she was tried and convicted. And there's a lot of just terrible details, you know, obviously in a case like that, that's so difficult to talk about. And it was one of those moments on the show where one of the panelists said, like, I wasn't looking for this top, forward to this topic. It's so, I'm, I have a lot of passionate feelings about it, but it's not funny. And I'm like, you don't have to be funny. And that's one of the things is like, you do not have to be funny to like talk about these things. But just the fact of like the human ability to talk about these things to get us through kind of makes us feel better. And, and one of the, you know, I think at first blush, I had a hard time understanding this case myself because I'm a parent and I'm also a citizen. I hate guns. I don't know. I felt some sort of relief when she was convicted because, yeah, why wasn't that gun properly managed? And why did he have a gun in the first place as a gift? And why didn't she take him home from school that day? Like all these things, right? As a parent. 
At first blush, I thought, oh, this is good. We don't convict enough around these mass shootings. There should be a bunch of convictions about so many things. That's like your first reaction, right? Right. And then you peel it back and then you think, where does parental negligence begin and end? What if it's a homeless family and they're negligent because they don't have a home? But what if they're homeless because they lost their job? And what if they can't find a home because the rents are so high? You start peeling this onion and it leads to so many more questions, right? And that's something that um, that one of the panelists, the wonderful Tracy Thomas from the Stacks podcast, she was able to to kind of like clarify for the listeners and for me in being able to really look at this issue of like, is this the right, con- is this how you litigate through a problem or is this not how you, you know, handle this problem? You're right. It's like affording basic humanity. It's like affording that benefit of the doubt, basic humanity to others and understanding their situation and where they're coming from. Sometimes we tend to ignore that and pass judgment based on what we see as facts. Yeah. And then another moment that I think was really seminal for me, and I know that it was seminal for listeners because I got so many messages about it, is when, so we found out in 2020, 20, when Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the race and she was my candidate, we found out while we were taping and we were taping with um, this Republican and I'm blanking on his name, which is so terrible, but he uh, had come in. He was from, I want to say Tennessee and he'd come into New York and we were taping this episode and he heard us be very upset about Elizabeth Warren dropping out of the race. And I like actually cried (laughs) on air because I was so invested in this candidacy. It made so much sense to me. And as, and I want to see so desperately a woman in that position. And he was like, guys, I'm a Republican. Obviously Elizabeth Warren is nowhere near my candidate, but man, I feel for you right now. And that was such a beautiful moment because you it's like one of those things it's like obviously a Republican feels for me right now. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we, you know what I mean? Like we're all people and like and it's great to like have Republican friends and to have Republican interactions. Like we should not be in these silos. And that's actually something that's really getting in the way, I think, is silo culture, which is something I don't feel like we had. When I'm trying to recreate the feelings of 2015, I don't feel like we had such a such strong silo culture in 2015. Can, can we change listeners' minds? Is that a possibility? Yeah. Like when I was, was making The Muslims Are Coming and I interviewed uh, Jon Stewart from The Daily Show for this movie. Oh my gosh, I'm a huge fan. Same here. And... So so one of the things I asked Jon Stewart, which actually did not make it into the movie because I felt like it was a downer, was he said, I mean, at that, at that point, it, so, so the, that movie came out in 2014. And, and at that point, he was still hosting The Daily Show. And he had been doing it, I don't know, for over 10 years or something. And he said, in all my years of hosting The Daily Show, I cannot point to one thing that I feel like my work has changed. Oh. And then I was like, are you out of your mind? You know what I mean? I was like, get out of here. Like I, you know, I I can't point to things specifically off the top of my mind, but th- but your voice as an un- as an undercurrent in American culture is so important and it does change things even though you can't specifically address them. And I felt so sad that he felt that way. And again, I didn't put it in the movie because I thought it was too um upsetting. <laughs> and 
And it's interesting because I, I do, you know, you cannot look at things that it's hard to point to individual things. Like I'm lucky enough actually to, this is a weird thing to say, I'm lucky enough to have sued the MTA for the right to put up funny posters about Muslims in the New York City subway system. But that's the win. In, and that was a win. I won that case. And we were so, and so that's one of those things where I'm like, if you if you look into the archives of New York City law, there is a case that's called Vaguely Qualified Productions versus the MTA, which is one of my favorite little tidbits. That's the name of my company. And that was the name on the case. And it says that you we have the right to put up funny posters about Muslims in the subway system. And that to me is something I changed. <laughs> Again, I wasn't, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to do comedy so I could get involved in lawsuits. Like I didn't want to have to sue the MTA. I wanted them just to be able to put up those posters in the first place. But that is something that we changed. And so, but of course you're not going to have that all the time. You know, you're not going to have like concrete things all the time. What you do have all the time is just the the feeling that these under, that the undercurrent of this message get somebody somewhere in their heart a little bit, a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit. Hey, I want to tell you about a new weekly podcast from PRX called Monumental. Did you know there are 22 monuments depicting mermaids, but only two depicting U.S. Congresswomen? The landscape of public memory is changing, but is the day-to-day changing with it? Monumental will uncover the stories that our monuments are telling about what and who is important, as well as the stories that have been left out. Join host Ashley C. Ford and a team of 12 journalists across the country as they confront the reality of what we publicly commemorate, exploring big questions about the past, present and future of monuments. Listen on Mondays wherever you get your podcasts. I want to go back to your Twitter. <laughs> As you can see, I <laughs> okay. really stalked you on Twitter. And I read this tweet about you going to a mushroom retreat that you did in summer of last year. It was in Jamaica. And you said something like you gave yourself permission to be embarrassingly vulnerable. And I just loved that phrasing the way you phrased this idea of being vulnerable to the point where it's almost embarrassing. And I wonder if there have been other situations in which you've been embarrassingly vulnerable. I think um, for anyone who's interested in psychedelics, I did I did uh, get paid to do l- large amounts of uh, psilocybin at a retreat in Jamaica. And, um, and you can read that whole piece in a far magazine and it is, it was an excuse to be vulnerable because I think as a comedian, you're supposed to like have this like tough skin and you're not, you know, um, comedians trying to turn everything into a joke and like vulnerability is really hard. Uh, I remember like I couldn't even tell my first boyfriend, even though I felt that I loved him, I couldn't say it for ye- forever, like for like two years or something. I didn't say it like because I, I just thought it was like, what am I, a girl? You know what I mean? Like I can't say that. And I think that when I was filming the Muslims are coming and I would, you know, I remember going to um, the 
the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, and holding up a sign that says hug a Muslim. And, you know, me and my co-producer, the wonderful Dean Obidala, were like holding these signs and literally Mormons lined up around the block to give us hugs. And I was so touched. Like I, it it was like the height of vulnerability to just be able to like just stand there and then just hope that someone will do it. But then also to see all of these people that would give you these like incredible hugs, not like little crappy, weak hugs, like real, <laughs> you know what I mean? Embraces, you know, like I, I joke on stage, like each hug came with the force of Joseph Smith. You know what I mean? Like that's what we were getting from these Mormons in Salt Lake City. I think that if vulnerability has always come for me in moments like that, where I'm like putting myself out there in a, in a place where like you might not typically expect to see alliances and building those alliances and just like recognizing like that really dorky, cheesy, sentimental reality, which is that people like giving hugs and receiving hugs and that people really just like do want connection and they want it now more than ever because our phones have stolen so much from us. So that I think, I, I, I feel like I get to kind of put myself in vulnerable positions because of how much travel is involved in comedy and how many different places I get to perform. I feel like I get to do it on, on a more um, regular basis than the average person. And I highly recommend being vulnerable in that way. You know, I would have thought comedy itself is vulnerable because you are standing in front of I don't know how many people making jokes, talking about st stuff in sometimes very self-deprecating manner. So to me, even comedy itself is vulnerable. It is being in that vulnerable space. No, that's an excellent point because it's, it's all, I'm so used to it now of going on a stage and trying out new material and like the new material could bomb. I mean, I remember one of my first, you know, when I was, you know, younger, I remember being on a lineup with a really famous comedian and he was working on new material and he, I had to go up after him because he was basically, you know, this concept of like getting bumped or whatever. I was supposed to not go up after this guy. I was supposed to just go up after another unknown comedian. But then he came in to do like 10, I don't remember. He did like 15 minutes and he came in with a notebook. I mean, he was literally doing just material he had never, ever tried, like looking at notes. Very famous guy could fill stadiums and he bombed. And I was like, wow, he just bombed. This really famous person just bombed. I, first of all, that's incredible. I've never seen that before from such a famous person. And I've never, and he shrugged it off like, okay, that's part of the process. And to feel those feelings of like, what everything I just wrote on this, these notes, are, it's not working in its current form. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> my first thought was like, wow, like that made me feel better. And it also made me feel terrible because I was like, oh my God. Does the vulnerability never end? <laughs> like, am I gonna you know, like it like it's like if I could see a guy who does stadiums like bomb, like the bombing never ends, you know? So there so it's um it's a double-edged sword. You basically sign up for that kind of feeling uh, all the time. Vulnerability can be a fuel for reinvention and reinvigoration as well. Why not? 
Yeah, for sure. Again, in the end, if you were to describe the United States of America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Oh man, it's funny because I do I I talk about this in in my my latest stand up hour, the case for American exceptionalism by a lady Muzz. That title it suggests that I think that America ha- is exceptional, and I do um, because I think it's like a place for just like an incredible, really unexpected possibility by people who you would never think we're in the same boat together. <laughs> I love that. That is America. That is America, indeed. Again, where can people find you, your work? Are there any upcoming projects that you're excited about that you want to share? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we're we're starting to make this uh, sequel to The Muslims Are Coming. The Muslims Are Coming, um, the expanded bigotry verse. So, so, so look out for, for news on that. But in the immediate term, you know, you could I you could see all of my dates upcoming on my website, nagineforsat.com. You could subscribe to my podcast, Fake the Nation. And that is really, you know, where I do a lot of my, uh, I'm there weekly. I also announce all my dates there. Um, you can read the Mushroom Piece in a Farm magazine, which I hope you do. It's like uh, I poured my heart and soul into this um, meaty, meaty piece. And um, you can also hear me on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. If you're a listener to that show, I'm on those shows as well. Thank you, Nagin. This was so good. I'm so glad we finally met Although via Riverside, but we still did. Same here. I'm so glad. What a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I've been a huge fan of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I've listened to Nagin's podcast, Fake the Nation. I love the energy there, the banter. So if you guys haven't listened to it, do check it out. And come back next week when I have another interesting guest. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Bobak Afshari and me. Our editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Music for Immigrantly is by Simon Hutchinson. Our editor and sound designer is Hazik Ahmed Farid. Until next time, take care.